This is Giving the Game Away with Cam Scott and Joel Barber. And our series of podcasts features interviews with a range of elite athletes, including Olympic gold medalists, international footballers, and BBC Sports Personality of the Year winners. This is a podcast that aims to explore the areas of an athlete's life that aren't often talked about, such as dealing with rejection, recovering from injuries, and handling the media. We also think there are so many lessons to learn from top-level sport, and by exploring the journeys of these athletes, we are hoping to show how those learnings can be applied to our own journeys, whether in sport or in our day-to-day lives. And coming up on today's episode... I think my biggest asset is making myself do things I didn't like doing. So going out, I mean, don't get me wrong, when we went out in the, the wind and the rain and it was cold, I moaned a lot, you know, I wasn't, you know, this paragon of virtue with it, but 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 I can make myself go out and do that. And that's, you know, in the whole of my career, I, I missed hardly any training sessions. It was always a choice for me, not a sacrifice, but there have been compromises along the way in that, um, because I wanted to do my fifth games, we only have one child. You know, it's things like that. But 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 it's it's the choice that we made at the time. So it is what it is. I think the benefit system needs an overhaul. I think education is. You know, academies legislation still allows head teachers to exclude disabled children if they want to. We were promised last January the first, twenty twenty, trains were meant to be step free. Um, every government has allowed derogations, so it hasn't happened. And. We're now being told it's going to be 2070. So here's the final episode of season three, and it's a great way to finish because today we have on one of Britain's greatest ever Paralympians, a sports personality of the year winner and a member of the House of Lords. It's the Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson. She's a true British sporting legend, but if you're not familiar with her story, Tanya was born with spina bifida and became a wheelchair user at the age of seven. That wasn't going to stop her though, and Tanya went on to win 11 gold medals across five Paralympic Games, as well as breaking over 30 world records and winning the London Marathon six times. Not satisfied with just success on the track though, since retiring, Tanya has gone on to fight for disability rights, act as an independent crossbench peer in the House of Lords, and help the bid, delivery and legacy of London 2012. She really is capable of anything she puts her mind to and it's incredible how many lives she is touching. In her acceptance speech of the Lifetime Sports Personality of the Year Award in 2019, Tani quoted Nelson Mandela saying, sport has the power to change the world and Tani's story really is credit to that. Her efforts to improve disability rights, encourage greater sports participation and reform the welfare system and sport have led to better lives for people around the country and beyond. But there is still a long way to go. And Tani tells us that she'll keep fighting for all these important causes. I'm just really honoured to have been able to spend time speaking with someone who is as talented, as successful and as influential in society as Tani is. She's a real icon and a driving force behind so much meaningful change that's brought into sport in this country and all over the world. And to be able to speak to her directly was a huge privilege. We speak about how the hardest part of our journey is often getting started, how our routes to success will always include unexpected twists and turns, and how it's in our interest as human beings to challenge ourselves as much as possible. Yeah, as Joel says, it was a great way to finish the series. We learned a lot from the conversation and we hope you do too. Let us know what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or send us a message on uh, Instagram or Twitter. 
Um, but for now, time to get on with the episode. Here is Tanny Gray Thompson. Firstly, thank you so much, Tani, for coming on today. It's a really big moment for us and we really do appreciate you giving up the time to speak to us today. There's obviously a lot to get into, um, but it makes sense for us to start with your early years and some of the foundations laid in those early years that allowed you to go on and achieve all the world records and, and gold medals that you did. I know for you in particular that your parents were a huge influence on your life and some of the lessons that you learned from them were vital in you going on to achieve all the success that you did. So could you just tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how it ultimately set you up for all the success that you went on to have? Yeah, my parents were amazing. So uh, I was born in Cardiff. That's where I grew up. Um, I was born with spina bifida. I could walk a little bit when I was young, but not really properly. My, my leg strength never developed. And then as I grew... Um, I've actually missing some bones at the back of my spinal cord. And then as I grew, my spine collapsed and my own vertebra severed my spinal cord. So I laugh about it because it's like, there's nothing I could do. I mean, I didn't miss a day of school. There wasn't any pain. It was just kind of what, as it was. Um, and there were loads of people who tell my parents all the things I'd never do if I became a wheelchair user. But my dad was an architect and he knew how inaccessible the world was because he helped build it. So... I used to love steps and cobbles and be like, oh, they're aesthetically pleasing. No, they're not. I hate them. Um, so he kind of was able to look at the world in a different way because he knew planning laws and building legislation and stuff like that. And it was a bit rubbish. And so he, he figured actually what was important was for me to be independent. And actually the best chance I had of that was being a wheelchair user. So, you know, they, they fought to get me a chair and I never saw it as as this inherently negative thing because I went from walking really badly and falling over a lot and not being able to walk to suddenly I could play with my mates and push myself around and do things. And I know not everyone who's a wheelchair user feels like that, but for me, it was, it was, it was this sudden independent from being able to go 10, I couldn't walk without holding on to anything. So I, I didn't have independence to suddenly being able to push into the middle of the playground and just sit there without, getting scabby knees from falling over. So for me, it was really exciting. Anyway, um, they they made a big difference and they encouraged me to be physically active, to be strong, strong enough to push my chair. And then my dad, he showed me this book and uh, had pictures of the Taj Mahal and the Sydney Opera House and he explained to me how they were built. And, you know, I think I was seven. And at seven, you're like, okay, whatever. Like, that's interesting. Um, but he then gave me this big lecture about I needed an education and I needed a good job and I needed to travel. And that was kind of quite exciting. And then, you know, that had a huge influence on my life. And then, you know, actually 10 years ago, dad was ill and we knew we didn't have much time left. And I said to him, do you remember that conversation? Because that was massive. And he was like, no, don't remember it. I'm great. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and, um, and then about half an hour later, he went, oh, yes, I do remember. I'm like, a bit late, dad, but okay. Um, and he was like, yeah, your mum and I had been chatting and you were quite an annoying child and we didn't want you living at home forever. Oh, great. so it was funny. I mean, my dad had quite a dark sense of humour. We're very close, but we had an ability to annoy each other quite easily. And, and I do remember thinking, oh, I'm so glad my dad told me the world was an amazing place. So they, mum and dad, I mean, they fought to get me into mainstream education. They threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to a mainstream school. You know, they were really quite stroppy and fought for me. 
And then I got into sport and my first coach, Roy Anthony, and then Dave Williams. You know, I just, there's loads of people around who, um, who saw me as an individual, didn't see me as a wheelchair user or not able to do things. And that, that was just really positive. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic way of parenting. And on the face of it, people might say that it seems a bit harsh. Uh, they didn't give you necessarily an easy ride, but actually it set you up for life so well. It, it allowed you to be self-sufficient uh, in, in later life and throughout your, your career uh, on all the things we're going to touch on in the next hour, your, your inner strength and resilience is something that really shines through and they really set you up for that. They did because I was five years old when the first person stopped me in the street and asked me why my parents hadn't deported me. You go, okay, wow. right, let's have that conversation with my mum. And she was really cool about it. I mean, she's, I mean, people find this really difficult. So she said, if she'd known that she was going to have a baby born with spina bifida, she probably wouldn't have carried on the pregnancy. People get really upset by that. She never said, Having had you, we wish we terminated you, which is quite different. Um, but, and, and she, I think she got grief because I talked about it in an interview and then people were really aggressive with her. And it's like, well, you know, just stop it, actually. You've got no right to be aggressive with my mum for what, because actually the attitude towards disabled people at that time and now is still not great. You know, since 2012, hate crime against disabled children's doubled. So, you know, we're not living in this, you know, world where disabled people have genuine equality and equity. You know, the start of pandemic, compulsory do not attempt resuscitation orders were put on thousands of disabled people with no underlying health conditions purely because they were disabled. So, you know, we need to be a bit honest here about where disabled, how disabled people get treated. But um, yeah, and they were good. My mum my and dad were quite different, um, but brought me up to kind of have a view. And that, that sometimes comes back to bite me because I, especially if people say to me, oh, go on, tell us what you think. I want you to be really honest. And then I tell them and they go, oh, you're very direct. Well, you, but, but I think a lot of that came from mum and dad. And I, you know, if people don't agree with me, that's fine. You know, I haven't got a problem. But um, they, people, yeah, my parents brought me up to, I guess, learn to fight for myself as well in terms of, you know, not be treated as a second-class citizen, as an athlete, and not be patronised, and you know, not you know, fight for access to buildings and shops and education and all, all those other things. Mm. Sounds like even your dad being proactive enough and um, belligerent about the fact that he was going to sue the Secretary of State for you getting the right to education. It sounds like the, the main thing they taught you was to not take no for an answer and to go out and if you really want something, just to go out and get it for yourself. Yeah, and, and that sort of fitted in with the training and, you know, my parents were, okay, if you want to be an athlete, great, but it's on you. We will take you places and we will support you, but you've got to train, you know, and, you know, we're not going to nag you and we're not going to cajole you, and, and they did a bit, but you know what, you, if, if you say you want to do it, do it, and if you don't do all the things you need to do, stop doing it. Mm. It was quite simple. So... You know, I learned from a young age to train and, you know, it, it steps up over time. You know, what I was doing at 18 was more than I was doing at 12. And what I was doing at 21 was radically different from what I was doing at 17, 18. But I think that thing about just going out and training, doing all the really boring stuff, because training is mostly really dull and cold and wet and horrible. 
And, you know, you don't go out through the door every day going, oh, I've got a chance to be GB Ackley. You know, it's, it's, it's a slog for these moments where you get to compete, which are great. But, um, yeah, I, I think uh, also Dad was very keen on, you know, you do it now. You can't go back and do it later. You know, you can't. There's not that many second chances you have in sports. So you've, you've got to just crack on and train hard and train smart and mm. don't have any regrets by the time you get to the end. Um, you know, and I think for me, you know, I, I, I was very lucky that I did five games. I knew in Athens that I was done. I didn't, I mean, my dad was like, right, okay, stop now. And I did another two years to know that I was definitely finished. But um, yeah, I think for me, it was, I, I never wanted to get to the end and think if only I'd done a bit more or done something different, you know, because you you, you can't go back in sport, you know, you, you don't get many second chances. That, that's exactly it. And you did give it everything. You gave 100% throughout all your career. I mean, uh, I heard that you tr you trained on Christmas Day most years, which is just says it all, really. Um, and that work ethic really pulled you along in, in those early years. And I think by your own admission, you say you weren't necessarily the most talented right at, at the very start, but your, your work ethic allowed you you to get to the top and, and be successful can you tell us about those early days uh, in wheelchair racing so I, I understand that actually basketball might have been your first <laughs> love uh, well I, I i tried every other sport because i before wheelchair racing so i just thought it was rubbish and you went around in circles and it looked really boring <laughs> and then, so i swam and i mean i joke but it was serious you know the highlight of my swimming career is i failed to drown i was dreadful <laughs> and even my mum who was generally really supportive just said to me she came to one of my swim mates and she was like but he looked like a drowned rat. And and so, you know, and then basketball. I I really loved basketball, um, but uh, I, I, there wasn't a lot of natural talent there. And, and one of the, a game I played for the school, well, I was, well, I was playing at basketball nationals. I got fouled off for fighting. So we played on mixed teams and there was a boy on the other team who was probably about twice the size of me. And he kept elbowing me and sort of doing that. And it, it really hurts because he was like in the bicep and shoulder. And I lost it and I just hit him in front of the referee. Uh, and I got sent off quite rightly. <laughs> I mean, the referee was good. He was like, that's really good. You're showing lots of passion, and but you can't hit people. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then it was one of my teachers was sort of, okay, do, do wheelchair racing because you can't get close enough to anyone to hit them. <laughs> compliment I mean it was and I tried it and I, I did it in school and um I just loved it actually that speed and the fact you could train with other people but then you were on your own um or you could train on your own you know and I suppose there was an element of it that you could be having the best day of your life in a team and if your team is not there um then you you, you don't get anywhere and I guess, you know, I did have aspirations to do well in, in sport or, or be the best I can. That, that was really important to my mum and dad was if I won, my dad would still say to me, but did you race well? He didn't care. I mean, if I'm happy, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm happy, but it was like, but if I said to my dad, well, I could have done that or, or um, I came 10th, but I said there was nothing else I could have done. He'd be like, that's good. Um, so, yeah, it was... Um, it, it was kind of interesting time because I think people would have looked at me and, and thought I would be difficult to integrate, but I loved doing sport. And so I, I just wanted to try everything. And I joke, but from 12, you know, that was it. You know, that's what I wanted to do. And it dictated which university I went to and 
who I married and the birth of my daughter was based on my competition schedule. I mean, absolutely. We had a mm. cutoff date and I really wanted to do the Manchester Commonwealth Games in 2002 and basically then thought, oh my God, if I'm going to have a baby before um, Athens, I need, it before, I need the baby before Commonwealth Games and literally had to Google how many weeks it takes to have a baby because what does, you know, nine months mean? It was like 40 weeks. <laughs> and like 40 weeks in training terms is a really long time and it was like oh my god and so we, we counted back six months we counted back 40 weeks and we had a cutoff day and that was it yeah and she was born six months before the commonwealth games and <laughs> um, with what you're saying as well about trying to be the best version of yourself that you can be um i think that does come with trying a load of things because often half the time someone becoming the best they can be is the other side of like the fear of actually trying it you know it's that first step that's always the hardest yeah and there was a lot of fear of failure but but the failure wasn't necessarily wrapped up with not winning races it was like there was some it's quite complicated in terms of why you do I mean I was driven to do it but also um I think I was able to get over the fear of being on the start line and the fear of trying um mm. But I didn't win a race for the first couple of years I competed, so I failed a lot. And I think there were definitely girls in my age group that were more, way more naturally talented, but then didn't join a club or didn't train or didn't do the other stuff. So I think it's it's a combination of all those different things that that helps. And I think what I was good at doing was making myself do the stuff I didn't like, which is where you show, you get big gains, you know, so... Being a sprinter, I was never—I was never a great starter. Bizarrely, I could start better on a bend than I could on a straight. I've no idea why. Um, never worked that one out really. But um, you know, my two hundred meter start was always better than my hundred meter start. I think because I was chasing someone down on you know the outside. Um, but um, we practiced starts every day in training, so yeah, I got better. But what I learned was to not panic when I had a bad start. So I think sometimes, especially when you're young you do the sessions you like doing, mm. but they're the things you're good at and where you're not going to make a massive jump, where the stuff that you're not good at doing, you put a bit of effort into, you will make that jump. So I think from being young, I learned that to, to just, and there's no excuses, you know, you just, you've got to get out and you can make excuses to yourself, but you can't, a week before selection, you can't suddenly do all the training to try and get you in that position. And we used to race a lot. I mean, I, my Paralympic career on the track is 19 and a half minutes for the five games I went to, but it's thousands of hours training and we raced 50, 60 times a year, you know, so it's, it's just doing all those different bits and it's, yeah, it, it's not the training, it's building the chair, getting the right helmet, you know, it, it's doing all the things. It's like a jigsaw that, that, that make you good. It's, it's crazy when you put it out like that is 99% of your career is the training and then the 1% is actually on the track. Um, those 19 and a half minutes just represents such a short uh, and small part of your career. But if if we delve into some of those uh, 19 and a half minutes now, um, we, we obviously can't touch on everything because there have been so many highlights in your Paralympic career. But if we start at the beginning, um, your first Paralympics was Seoul in, in 1988 and you were still a student at Loughborough University just 19 years old and you're competing on, on the biggest stage can you give us an indication of what that experience was like and I think even like the the politics and the social movements going on in in Seoul at that time had a bit of an impact on you 
Um, so I'd made a jump at sort of the age of 17, 18, and I was doing well, but wasn't, you know, didn't know whether I was going to get selected. I still remember going home. It was end of term, and uh, I went home. My mum said, that there's a letter there for you. And it was like, okay, this is it. I remember opening it and just screaming. Cause it said, dear Tanya, congratulations. I don't remember anything else. Um, and so that, that was, so, you know, I was kind of in reality, one of the last people to be selected. I was there for a learning opportunity. Um, going into Seoul was fascinating because you'd had the Olympics and there was a lot of anti-American riots and, you know, a kind of, um, my, my degree was politics, but history, really. And, uh, you know, understanding sort of the, the country that I was going into. So actually that was something else for my parents was like, you know, travel the world, but understand where you're going and what you're doing. And so, you know, when I got there, such an utterly different culture at that time from anything I was used to in terms of the language. I travelled a lot in Europe, but, you know, you couldn't guess any of the words and the food and kimchi and just everything was so different um and you know the village and the food and i mean just it was like um, and then when you do your second one then you're more used to it but i remember i think i remember just going around wide-eyed about everything and i probably had one of the best races in my career i won a bronze medal in the 400 massive step up um and i remember thinking okay right this is you know, so many years of my training career to get to here. What can I do in the next four years? So for me, it was massively motivational to then come back and, and go, okay, right, what more can I do? Um, and, and it was an amazing experience being there as a sort of little 19-year-old. Um, and then there's a lot of luck along the way, you know, in terms of, you know, going on to Barcelona. I graduated in 91, so then had a year where I could do as much travelling as I wanted to go into, you know, Barcelona, which was my second games. And it sounds like you're obviously incredible at taking moments in your life and then being able to learn so much from them. Because obviously then you went on to Barcelona, you won four gold medals. How was that four years later from your first Olympic Games? How was it then to return and have such success in, in that Games? It was different. So by the time I got to Barcelona, you know, I was kind of expecting to be selected. Um, I'd have to say, you know, the year of my finals was quite hard, balancing training and competing and wasn't, I had a lot of ups and downs in that season. Um, but just having that solid winter and then being able to race early in 92, where I started breaking world records. Um, and that was an amazing feeling because it, 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 it felt easy, which it, it's never like that for very long. But I can't, I can't remember how many world records I broke in 82, but I remember the first one I broke was the 200 and then, you know, kind of basically did one, two, four and eight that season. And that was great because you'd like, oh, everything was sort of falling into place. And being in Barcelona was amazing because we had, you know, huge crowds. Um, one of the sponsors was Once, a charity for blind people in Spain. You know, they really got behind the games. The tickets were cheap. You know, my family was there. The weather was nice. And it was a real turning point in Paralympic coverage because, you know, Grandstand covered it, mm -hmm. um, which was a sports programme on BBC on Saturday afternoons, if you're too young to remember it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that was, and, the, you know, Blue Peter covered it and, you know, and there was stuff on the news. And so it felt like this massive turning point in, in the Games. And I think it helped because the Olympic team had done well. Um, and then, you know, it was a chance for the Paralympic team to kind of step up too. So... Mm -hmm. It was it, it was probably 
the easiest games I went to because I was just in that sort of section of my career where it all just fell into place. And that doesn't happen very often. And I think the nearest I've seen was when Dave Weir was competing in 2012, when he could have won his races kind of any way he wanted. It, it just, sometimes you're lucky if you have that moment in time at the games at, when it happened. Uh, and it was, it, it was great. But then again, still coming back, um, thinking, okay, right, what do I do? What's the next? So I always knew at one games that I wanted to at least try for the next one until actually until Athens when it was like, I don't, I don't want to do Beijing. I'm done. So it, for me, that four year focus was, was really positive in terms of, okay, next four years, next. So the worlds and everything else were kind of important, but not as important as Paralympics for, for, you know, for me, that was what I had to, to do. And I think one thing I've heard you say about that Olympic games is the influence that Helen Rollison had on that mm. games and the undying love and passion she had for sport came through and it really was a shift in how the Olympic Games is covered. And as well as that, it's the inspiration, the impact she had on other people like Claire Boulding, for example, and the legacy of that is something that you see nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So she was amazing because she just decided she'd cover it as sport and nothing else. And we there's now a term for it called inspiration porn, but we, we didn't have it then, which was like the slightly patronising. You can safely kind of put it into a search engine the slightly patronising, aren't they all brave and marvellous kind of coverage that sort of exists a bit today, which is a bit challenging. And she was just like, we're going to, you win and lose. That's it, you know. And, um, you know, Helen covered Barcelona uh, and she covered Atlanta. And uh, then she she died before, she died in 1999. Um, and then so a whole bunch of her friends and colleagues were like, okay, we're going to, you know, take this to to the next level so um helen had a massive contribution to to make on the paralympic movement because she set a really important tone for the games and i think some of it was the experience she'd had so when she got to present grandstands it was like front page on some newspapers that they're letting a woman present grandstand you know like and and some of the tone i remember having conversations with people go do the bbc know what they've done because like oh because obviously women don't know anything about sport do they so but that that was some of the tone at the time mm. so it was like really so I think she understood the portrayal and um she she was just amazing in terms of what what she did for us absolutely amazing it it certainly sounds like that Paralympic Games really set a good foundation for the progression of it in the years going forward and it certainly did for you as well as an athlete you you got those four gold medals you also this in the same year won the London Marathon so it was a huge year for you 1992 um, but if we go to the next games in Atlanta in many ways it was actually a step back for Paralympic sports from what um, has been said it, it didn't engage with the public as well as Barcelona did which is surprising considering uh, the USA is um, is progressive and a world leader for uh, disability rights so it is surprising yeah, I mean, we had really high expectations on Atlanta. I mean, the American with Disabilities Act is amazing. And they'd had scholarships at university for disabled athletes for years and, um, you know, really good prize money on the road. And and then as we were leading up to it, it was like, OK, there were two organising committees and 
you know, the Paralympic Organising Committee really struggled and you know, all the baseball games that got cancelled during the Olympics, I think happened during the Paralympics. And we had days where you could name the crowd, literally be like, oh, there's my dad and there's my sister. And, you know, there's Leanne Shannon's mum and dad. And, you know, it was because they didn't get the Paralympics. And, and also, I mean, the, you know, they were dismantling part of the Olympic village around us. Um, and you know, the food wasn't great and the treatment, but the Olympic team had struggled. I mean, the Olympic team had struggled in terms of medals, but, but also in terms of, you know, there were stories of athletes missing their events because the bus drivers had gone the wrong way. And so both games presented a different set of challenges. I mean, amazing stuff came out of it in terms of the lottery act changed and allowed lottery funding to go into elite sport. But, um, you know, I, I won a golden three silvers and... It's one of those things in in three out of my four events, someone went quicker. There was nothing I could do. I mean, actually, in terms of how fast I was racing, um, I was racing really quick, you know, breaking personal bests. I broke the 200 record, world record in the semi-final, but didn't win the final. And, and there's nothing you can do. You know, that is just sport. And um, I do remember, you know, coming back and someone from the team saying, oh, you should retire now, you're done. I was like, I don't think I am. You know, whether I get selected or not, that's not the reason I... I mean, it's, it's part of it, don't mean it's part of the reason you do it. But the reason I did it is because I love wheelchair racing and I wanted to race and I wanted to get better and the selection's out of your hands. So, um, and you can still do an absolute shed load of races without needing GB team selection. So um, th that was interesting because I... I came back and then spoke to my friends and family and said, what do you think? Do you think I'm done? And my dad was like, don't be so stupid. Of course you're not. Uh, and my mum's attitude and boyfriend, you know, people around were saying, well, do you want to stop training? And I was like, no, I don't. And it's like, well, keep going. And then if you don't get selected, you don't get selected. But, you know, don't don't let someone who doesn't know you have this massive impact on your life about whether you do another four years or not. And that was interesting because that person didn't really know me, didn't know me as a person or or anything or how I trained or, but they felt they they could. And I think that's where some of my stoppiness probably comes from, is people. I don't mind people telling me what I can and can't do because I can choose to do it or not do it. But somebody being so definite of like you're done, you know, and it was like yeah, but that doesn't have to influence me. I don't know how they can say say you're done when you're still smashing personal bests and, and breaking world records. Clearly, you had a lot more still to give. Um, and I think it's about that recognising that it's not all about winning necessarily. It's about performing well. And that's what your dad taught you uh, from a young age. It's about doing your best, controlling controllables, mm. and then you can be content with your performance. Yeah, I mean, four goals in Atlanta would have been nicer, don't get me wrong. But I, I couldn't have gone any quicker. And, you know, looking back at my training diaries and the races I'd done leading up to it and actually how fast I was pushing, that that was, there was, there was nothing left, you know, it was all on the track. So, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things because the, the medal table is so binary, you know, silvers only count when there's a tie for gold and bronzes only count mm. when there's a tie for gold and silver. So as much as people go say, oh, that bronze was lovely, a team manager would rather one gold than 10 silver any day of the week. Because, mm. you know, uh, but I think what, again, from my parents and my coaches, they were very, found it was important to look at all your races 
did you do well you know what else would you do analyze each race what you could do differently um but look beyond the color of the medal and so for me atlanta was it was hard but it was also yeah it it, it was the best that i could be at that that moment in time and I mean, roll forward a few years later and um, I've had Karis and I was competing at Swiss Nationals 2002 and but we'd had a plan for the 400 and we were trying out some new things and and 400 metres is split into eight segments, really boring, and I broke the world record and uh, I came across the finishing line and looked at the time and my husband, who's my coach, was there and he was like, mm, your first five pushes weren't great. And I was like, okay, but do you see the time? And he's like, yeah, but we weren't talking about the time today. That's not, you know, the time was kind of irrelevant. And then one of my training partners, Jason, was like, Ian, look at the clock. Mm-hmm. And Ian kind of looked at the clock and he went, yeah, that was quick. Yeah. I was like, it's a world record. And he's like, your first five pushes still could have been better. <laughs> and you go, and that was, I mean, I think sometimes people think, oh, it wasn't horrible because it was like, actually he was right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's all that bit. If I got the first five pushes, I might not have got the last five pushes and all those other things. But um, yeah, for me, it was in every race, I was aiming for that perfect race. Mm. And if I got that, I had a chance of winning. And if someone had a more perfect race than me, was it, you know, can't do anything about it. Yeah, I guess with that's just the nature of sport, isn't it? So many people tie success to the things that are quantifiable. And so many people would say, oh, Tani Gray Thompson is an amazing athlete because she's won all these goals. But at the same time, you're an amazing athlete because you're focusing on the process and it's more about the pursuit of trying to get better each race you do. Yeah, and if I had to pick my top 10 races, a couple of them would be gold medals. Mm, exactly. Well, quite a few of them wouldn't be. So one of the best marathons I ever did was one where I came fourth, where I got dropped by the women's pack uh, at, how far in? At about 17 miles. Mm. And I spent the next three, I, I didn't give, I spent the next three miles. And so... Once they realised they dropped me, the pack started working together to try and drop me. And I got caught by a pack of men, but I refused to sit on the back of the pack of men so that they could never say that the men had pulled me back. And so I pulled this pack of men back to the women's pack. And I remember one of the male Dutch athletes afterwards said, oh, thanks for that. You know, you pulled us back to the women. But so that for me was like, you know, that that those, those sorts of races that count as my best races or some of them, not necessarily the, the gold medal winning ones. The, the normal service did resume with, in terms of gold medals in Sydney, though. You, you got back to four gold medals then. Yeah, and, and, and that's lovely. I mean, it's not. I remember, um, you know, I'd been at the Olympics. We had a demonstration at the Olympics, and I competed the same night that Cathy Freeman had run. That was amazing. Um, and, you know, Sydney early on, weren't that excited about having the Paralympics. Um, and but the games were really good. And, you know, one of my best friends in sport, Louise Savage, an Australian athlete, you remember kind of watching the pressure that was on her competing in the home games and they named a road after her in the Olympic Park and it was all um and it was a lot of fun. But I do remember my last final was the four hundred and in the evening and I was sitting in the coach's house, sort of having a cup of tea about eleven o'clock in the morning. And just saying to the two coaches, I just, I just want this to be over now. Like, and they're like, yeah, come on, you got one more race. And <laughs> I just, I just want to be done. And um, yeah, finishing uh, and the relief actually, because I think with each cycle, you know, as you get older, it changes. And 
the pressure changes and your body changes. And um, I remember then meeting up with my family. I remember eating chips, having the best tasting chips I have ever had. Um, and and I was just sort of spending time with my family and the coaches. And that was, um, it, it's, it's other moments which are really kind of nice, you know, that you... Yeah. You know, I was like my sister traveled to a lot lot of the big stuff that I did and, and having her there and um that was was really lovely. Whilst in sport there's obviously the the highs and the adrenaline of competing on the on the highest level. I think often the case is it's the moments after you've almost got a sense of relief and a feeling that the job is done and then it's celebrating with your family that is ultimately the best part. It it is because it's celebrating with the people who've been through it with you. And I'm actually mostly what I remember about Sydney. So I've had many bad, bad haircuts in my life. But, um, okay, moral of the tale, never let your roommate dye your hair. <laughs> so I had very short hair going in Sydney. And my roommate, really good mate of mine, Nicola, um, she's like, should we put some blonde highlights in? So I went, oh, yeah, come on then. What she did, she put blotches on my hair. Um, said, oh, it's not taken. It must be the Australian bleach. Put a plastic bag on my head, put a hairdryer on it. And I had all these like splodges on my head. She thought it was hysterical. So I then tried to dye my hair several times and ended up with bright red hair, which was like the best <laughs> I could get it. And then rather than kind of telling the whole story, what happened, I was like, oh yeah, I thought I'd be patriotic or something. I don't know what. <laughs> um, and, but I do remember my sister arriving in Sydney and seeing my hair and going, oh my God, you were going <laughs> to race with hair that colour. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, you can't. That's just horrific. Um, so yeah, I kind of remember those are the bits you remember as well. As much as like being on the track, it's like those mm. those kind of the other bits which are in. You know, it's bits when you're in the dining hall with your friends, and you know, last night. You know, there's always a big party on the last night. You know, but just sitting in the dining hall at three o'clock in the morning, so exhausted, but you can't sleep, and sitting and having a coffee or whatever, and and those moments are really special. Those are the bits I kind of miss. I don't miss the competing. I miss the the best bits of the camaraderie and there's also hard bits because you know you're living in really close proximity to lots of people and that can be quite hard but um the, yeah I, I miss the the camaraderie of being with the team uh, I, think, I think what's so special about the the Paralympics and the Olympics is you get athletes from all over the world from dis different disciplines and sports all in the same place and, and they will share that common experience and you, you must have some amazing stories to tell from, from those days. So obviously the, the four gold medals in Sydney, it was the second time you'd, you'd uh, completed that particular quadruple. What I'm interested to know is, does your motivation wane slightly once you've achieved those heights, you've already got the most you could possibly ever get in Olympics at those gold medals. Do, do you still want to, how do you keep motivating yourself when you know you can't get any better? So at that point, I still thought I could get better. I, th I could go faster. I still felt I had it in me to improve. And then it's still that bit that if there's someone quicker, there's nothing I can do, but I felt I could go quicker. Uh, which is quite different to Athens, where I just in Athens knew that was I couldn't get quicker. Um, so at that point, I could from Sydney, I could still commit to another four years, and um, I still felt there was room for me to improve. Oh, actually, everything. My my two hundred and four hundred were probably my best events. Um, I still felt that my PB at that time for the eight hundred was good, but I reckoned I could knock another couple of seconds off which I actually did in 2004 um but yeah I, I still felt there was more in me to give 
yeah, we spoke to Francis Horton, who is probably one of the only other people as well to have been able to do the number of Olympic Games that you did. And she was like you in admitting that often the training was obviously not very nice. You were in uncomfortable situations and 99% of the time something was telling her to stop. But there was that 1% of her that she'd committed to doing five Olympic Games and committed to being the best person she could be and the best athlete she could be. And that was carrying her through the whole time. That sounds exactly like you. You knew there was something inside of you that you could get better, you could get quicker, and that was ultimately driving you through. And I was born in the right year. I mean, you've, <laughs> you've, you know, I mean, you've got to think about those things that if I'd been born a year earlier or a year later, I think I could have only done four games. If I'd been born a year uh, later, I wouldn't have made song. And, you know, so so you've, you've got to take into account, you know, that I was 35, I think, in, in Athens. You know, that's pretty on the edge of elite sport. I mean, it was right on the edge. And, you know, I'd really looked after myself. I hadn't had any major injuries um, that had taken me out for any sort of great length of time. My body was just about sort of holding together. Actually, 2005, everything started breaking down. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think there's just, there was something in me. I mean, the other thing as well, we, we used to, you know, look at different, women's performances and look at where you know who were the up-and-coming athletes and you know trying to track where people were coming from and where they were going but I mostly trained I mean just because of the number of women that were racing in the UK at the time at that level um I mostly trained with the men's squads and you know I had a number of men that I wanted to beat so one of them was my husband that I was you know I I trained every day because I thought I had a chance of beating him and there were some men in the GB squad that were a similar level to me. And, and that really pushed me on because I knew that if I was level with those guys, um, and it's it really funny, when we used to road race in the UK, so these were British athletes, if I was still with a men's pack three miles into the race, the reason I would get dumped out of the pack would be Ian would go to the front of the pack, he would kick at a point that made it really hard for me to stay with the men's pack, and he'd dump me out the back. And I remember the other guys in the squad saying, but shouldn't he be helping you? And like, no, I don't want him to, you know, because that makes me race harder. And I, I remember there was one race. I mean, it's like the Woodall Spa half marathon. I mean, and I remember just looking at the, a bend coming up and going, oh, and I saw Ian moving to the front. I'm like, this is what he's going to, and it'd be like trying to, you know, but it teaches you to watch the pack and racing, you know, a different way. And um, yeah, so racing with the guys made me, you know, it really, pulled me on and I remember going just before Sydney pushing really fast and we were out training on the road and saying to the guys in the training group actually I'm pushing really quick today I'm pushing really fast and they're like oh yeah and um Ian sitting alongside me and he said come on let's do a sprint and I did a sprint and I was going really really fast and at my maximum speed he put his left hand on his steering of his chair and kept up with me pushing one-handed and it was like and he's like you're pushing quick but do, and it was like hmm. so um yeah for me, for me it was I, I had an amazing training group that that um helped get the best out of me and they were lovely and kind I mean it was actually one of my training partners realized I was pregnant before I did one of my male training partners because <laughs> uh, I he went to get me a coffee and I was like oh I can't drink it and he was like are you pregnant oh <laughs> I probably should tell him before I have this discussion with one of with my training partner. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So you know, there, there are those, actually those moments are really quite 
special yeah way you know I, I guess that all goes back to the whole putting yourself in challenging situations not just repeating things that you know you're good at it's about testing yourself and by training with the men you were testing yourself and I love hearing about your competitive nature with with your husband who you were competing with um do you think that your competitiveness throughout your career has been one of your biggest assets uh yes but it meant that for a long time when I was competing you know um it, it was hard to keep in touch with friends from university because uh, we didn't have emails back then. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it was always a choice for me, not a sacrifice. But there have been compromises along the way in that um, because I wanted to do my fifth games, we only have one child. So if I wasn't planning to do Athens or, you know, if I would, you know, we probably would have had two children, you know, it's things like that, that, but, but it's, it's the choice that we made at the time. So it is what it is. So, you know, um, I, I think, I think my biggest asset is making myself do things I didn't like doing. So going out, I mean, don't get me wrong. When we went out in the, the wind and the rain and it was cold, I moaned a lot, you know, I wasn't, you know, this paragon of virtue with it, but, but, but I could make myself go out and do that. Mm. And that's, you know, in the whole of my career, I, I missed hardly any training sessions. I changed loads for lots of different reasons, but I didn't miss training sessions. It seems like that's something that, even from Cam and I interviewing a lot of athletes, it seems that that's something that's quite constant is those who are willing to put themselves through situations that are uncomfortable and that others are not willing to put themselves through ultimately leads you to achieve what you th thought was unachievable and, and, and not possible at all. So it seems something that's constant throughout athletes from a range of sports is that ability to to be it sounds a bit odd but being comfortable with being uncomfortable yeah and i think my pain threshold was quite high um and yeah so we did train on christmas i only used to train once on christmas day um <laughs> my mum used to get really grumpy you slap and, <laughs> look, i i trained on christmas day because daily thompson trained on trained on christmas day and i remember saying that to her and she'd be like that daily thompson you tell him. <laughs> I have told Daly, it's really funny. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, I, I trained on the morning I got married. Um, we, we trained, to, to, I trained separately the morning we got married. We trained together the morning after and we went to Switzerland and stayed 10 metres off a marathon course for our honeymoon. Mm. That is dedication, right? I, I, think, I think with you as well, it seems like there's obviously a lot of talk about how obsessed people need to be with their sport it's it's the one thing that um takes over their life but with you not only were you achieving such success in sport but you also at the same time you were heavily involved with lottery funding you were campaigning for a lot of change in a lot of areas of life so although you were saying you were completely obsessed with pursuit of excellence in your sport it's not like you didn't allow for other things in your life as well yeah i mean you, there's only so many hours a day you can train and um i like being busy I'm not very good at doing nothing. I mean, there was a big part of it as well was that um, I needed to develop skills that when I retired, that I had something to do. So, you know, there was never really any money in my sport, you know, lots of gift vouchers, or not even a lot of gift vouchers. So, you know, I, I was able to kind of do enough every year to do another year. And for me, 
you know, my dad, again, really important part of this. He didn't think being an athlete was a real job. I mean, to be fair, he didn't think being in the House of Lords was a real job either. Because when I told him I got there, he was like, well, it's still not a real job, is it? <laughs> um, but so for me, it was about not just filling time, but giving me a sense of purpose and having something that when I retired would step in. So, you know, two and a half years after I retired, I ended up in the House of Lords and people go, oh, that's a really quick transition. No, no. I was planning my transition from 21. So I knew when I stopped competing, all the things I didn't want to do. And I had an idea what I wanted to do. So it wasn't that, you know, it, that there was lots of things going on. And I, I need my brain to work as well. As mm. And, and don't me, you, you've got to think about training. You know, you, it's not completely mindless. But but I needed other things to, to, to keep me going. And I think for me, I think that balance between... I didn't always get the balance right at university, really didn't. But I think doing other things like some of the boards and things I sat on and competing were really important just to give me other things to talk about and think about. And and I say this to all the young athletes, you know, if you go to a sponsorship dinner or something, you're sitting next to someone really important. There's only so long you can have a conversation about what training you did last Friday because it's a bit dull. Um, so you need other things. And I think as Michael Jordan said that, you know, you should read a newspaper every day. And, you know, you can read bestseller, you can read, tra- I mean, you can read anything, but just have other things in your life to talk about. Because actually, if you're injured or something happens or you, you're no longer on the team, you need something that steps in. So what, what I really want, and, and I think I was influenced quite a lot by athletes that I knew who were older, that I was quite close to, where I'd seen some of the difficulty they'd had when they transitioned out, that they didn't have anything that sort of fitted into that slot uh, that training and, and competition gave. So for me, it was was wanting just to do other things. And a bit of it, if I'm honest, was living up to my, my expectation of my parents had for me. You know, my, my parents said to me when I was relatively young, you've had a lot of advantages, so you need to give something back. And so I think there was all quite complicated things wrapped up in that, wanting to prove to my parents that I'd, I was worth the time they invested in me. Uh, that's a great mindset to have and I think as an athlete it would be very easy to fully immerse yourself into your sport so it is important to have interests away uh, from your sport so that you're well-rounded um, and that allowed you to go on and do all the amazing things you've done since retiring if we just go back to your uh, just before retiring with your last Paralympic Games in Athens in 2004 um, you, you started off um, with the 800 meters which you actually quite disappointed with you it was the first time your daughter had watched you race it 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 wasn't your best performance and you were you were very upset about it but then shortly after you had the um the 100 meters which yeah. on paper is your weakest event and you ended up getting the gold from that can you give us a, a bit of an insight into what that roller coaster of emotion was going from the heartbreak of the 800 meters to the just ecstasy of the 100 meters it was so emotional so we knew the timetable months, maybe a year ahead. And I remember thinking that is great that the 800 is first, you know, it's one of my strongest events and that really sets me up. And, you know, that's, that's great. And um, after having Karis, my daughter, it had changed the way I was able to train and compete. And I was really, really struggling with my starts. So in the racing chair, ultimately it's fixed gear. The, you've got the back wheel and you've got the size of your push rim and that's your fixed gear. And I had to radically change the size of my push rim, which meant that 
I had more guaranteed ability to start, but uh, I had less ways to manipulate the push rim, um, to kick and to do other things. So basically, I, I just had to keep up a really high cadence for an 800. That was it. And so uh, from about a year out, we knew the only chance I had of winning the gold medal was to, and this we, we trained this, was basically to go to the front of the pack and kill myself and try and kill the sprint out of the other women in the final. Really simple. So as we broke off the bend, I decided to go to the back of the pack. I'm like, no idea. I'm gonna laugh about it. I have no idea. Cause as I, as I was doing it, it was like, I can't say it was like, oh, this is stupid. And then you can't get back. So that was really miserable, really hard. You know, I think you do the interview at the end, whether you win or lose, that's, you know, you didn't, you never walk past that camera. And that was pretty hard. And then all these British supporters were going, that was rubbish. I was there. And you know, I remember some guy saying to me, well, that was stupid. Yep. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, and I also think you've got, I, I was brought up in um, an environment where you're respectful to other athletes. I, I'll be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't great mates with lots and lots of other athletes, but he's brought up to be respectful and, and respectful for people who come and talk to you because they've paid money to come and watch you race. So I remember to this one guy going, yeah, what would you have done? Do you know what? It was completely stupid what he said. It was like, I'll do that next time. Anyway, no more family crying because they, you know, could have stayed at home. And, and the hard bit, that was really bad. And I was just crying a lot. The really, really hard bit was going back to the village because if you win or you do really well, from your other teammates, you might get, if you're really lucky, it's all right. You know, there's no red carpet for any athletes you go back. What was really hard was seeing friends from the athletics team and from different sports saying, oh my God, I saw it, are you all right? And I remember one of the basketball lads and the basketball guys could be quite, you know, direct. And that's got, you know, it's all people I'd known for a really long time. And one of them came up to me and I was expecting Tim to be, quite forthright and tell me how bad I was. And he just looked at me and he gave me a hug. I was in pieces. And he was like, you're right now. And it, yeah, it, it was quite a short word to use. I can't repeat anything. But, and he was just like, just sort your head out. Yeah, okay. Um, and then coming back for the 100 was horrific. Um, so one of my, my training partners had made the team and she came onto the war, uh, she came onto the track in the two days in between and trying to get my head back together. Um, the coach, Jason, uh, a different Jason, was was allocated to look after me. And I remember I threw up 12 times. I was thrown up stomach lining because I was scared. And I remember him standing with a bag of ice on the back of my neck. And he was saying, I have no idea how I drew you. Like, seriously, I'm never going to be your coach again. And, you know, he was like, um... and I remember leaving the track. And we had a saying within our training group, which was, it's a good day to die. And you come to me, but it was literally, it's basically you leave it all on the, on the, on the track. And Ian said that to me and, and Jace said um, pretty much the same. Uh, and I remember being on the start line and watching the clock because the race went at 6.03. I remember it hitting six o'clock and then 6.01 and 6.02. And it was like, and then the whistle goes, and this is all moved. And even now when the whistle blows before the start, I go, and, and I remember the whistle going and going, this is it. I, so I couldn't even push a lap as my final warm up, I couldn't push. Um, and it's almost like I remember the race in slow motion. It was amazing. Um, and there's a picture of um, 
the race an Italian athlete Francesca Portolato amazing a really good friend of mine in sport and um she'd uh done well in the 800 and actually on the warm-up track for the 100 she'd come up to me and said how you doing and it was like mm, not great 800 and she just said to me you'll be okay today and just just put it you'll be okay I, and I just thought I was amazed she didn't you know she didn't need to do that and there's a picture of her at the and she was in the lead at the 30 meter mark and I'm way back and then you watch the race and I just gradually pull her in and and it was not panicking it was learning not to panic about what she had this amazing start um and so when I won she she was the first athlete to come over and say well done which mm -hmm. is really cool um and yeah so it was this massive emotional roller coaster which was um but I do remember for my 200 meters which was my last race at the games doing the final lap before the start and you kind of you weave your way around and as I was going to, in my lane to the start line thinking this is it this is my last Paralympics I I I remember I, I remember just thinking I'm I I, I'm not doing another one of these. I'm um, said physically, mentally. I, I just I knew I couldn't do another four years at that point. And it'd been coming up. It'd been sort of thereabouts. I mean, I did do another two years to make sure I was completely and utterly done. And and then part of that was the two years of planning my my absolute transition out. But um, yeah, it was it was quite mixed emotions. It was it was emotional because my family knew I was going to stop, but I didn't tell anybody for a, quite a long time after. Um, and, and so there was, it was quite emotional flying back and thinking, okay, I'm, I'm done with the Paralympics. Yeah, and I, I feel that the disappointment of the 800 metres and being able to part that and then coming back and having the, the highs of the 100 metres, although it would have been nice to win the 800 metres, it, it just typifies sport, doesn't it? You have those peaks, you have those troughs. I'm sure for you, you, you wouldn't change any of it for the world. It's all part of the journey, isn't it? Yeah, it is because I think it, it's it's important to have those highs and lows. You only appreciate the highs if you have the lows, however bad the lows are. And, you know, it taught me who my friends in sport were. Um, you know, Atlanta taught me that as well. But, um, yeah, I remember, you know, just so many points where you you, you can't change it. You know, it's, it, was, it was no one's fault but mine. And even if I'd gone to the front, doesn't mean... I mean, the other thing is that... the. Sherry Blower, American athlete who um, who won. I mean, she had a fab race, and um, she she also basically she knew what my tactics were, so she was killing herself to get to the front before I did, you know. So it's it, it's one of the it's 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 sport, you know. Mm -hmm. you've, you've got to have those up. No one owes you a, a race or a win. No one owes you selection. No one owes you anything, mm -hmm. and so each time it happens, it's a privilege, and and you have to take those those ups and downs with it. Mm -hmm. um, I did. On, on the last night party in Athens, we did eat a lot of ice cream. That's, That's it's probably not as exciting as some people's <laughs> last night party, sorry. But yeah, we, we, we sat in the dining hall and um, we ate a huge amount of ice cream. With the nature of sport as well, and it's something I've heard you say before, is that difference between talent and just having grit and a bit of bloody mindedness. Mm. Do you think there needs to be a bit of a shift in proportion of... <laughs> young athletes for example there's so much of a focus on physical training and trying to recreate the physical environment when they go in and play their sport do you think there needs to be a bit of a shift to trying to teach those skills of resilience and bloody mindedness and a bit of stubbornness as well because ultimately that is what separates some of the 
good sportsmen from the elite, really. Yeah, and you know, resilience is not something in, in many sports that's taught, and you can you can find ways to teach it. Um, what we expect is our young people to have it, um, and actually, I I think we there are some sports where you need to concentrate at a younger age. So gymnastics and swimming, you do have to make decisions earlier on than you do say in athletics or other sports. Um, but I think we should be encouraging our young people to stay multi-sport until 16, 17, um, to not pick that one sport. Because even though at 12 I was doing wheelchair racing, I was still doing other stuff. Mm. And again, my parents were like, yeah, you can do wheelchair racing as your main sport, but you have to do other things. So even though I was an appalling swimmer, my parents still said, you've got to still swim. I'm like, really? And because actually it's good for you. Um, so I think we, um, and in big sports like football, where it's really hard, you know, if you think your child is going to play for a Premier League club and earn 300 grand a week, you're not going to be that worried about other sports or education. But actually the, the mill that churns out children, I mean, there's tens of thousands that get spat out of the system. And I think we need to be, I'm, I'm not being all warm and cuddly about it. It's how we, we get these young people back into the system in the same sport, different sport, to be a cannon for, you know, for the, to be the steps for the next bunch of talented kids who might make it, but also for their just physical health. Um, and I think it's really hard when you're telling a 12, 13 year old that they're not good enough to be on a squad anymore, even a 19 year old or 25 year old. I think the way we tell young people needs a, a, a rethink because actually elite sport's really important but long-term mental health and physical well-being is really important too and I think I, 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 I would just do more for that that say yeah have your first sport but you've also got to do because it gives you balance as well you know when you're young if, if you're having a bad time in one sport you might be having a better time in another so I, I kind of think balance is is really important in what you do and you know even when I was competing going into Sydney I, I did some basketball training um just to give me other stuff to do and um yeah it was really funny I, I played a couple of games but again because you know a lot of the guys and been around for a long time um I remember being in a game and no one would come near me when I had the ball because they didn't want to be responsible for smashing my hands in and, and literally, I still couldn't shoot. I mean, there was one time I actually managed to catch a rebound. And normally everyone comes piling in. And nobody did because they're like, Tanny. And I remember someone on the opposite side shouting, watch Tanny's hands. And and I was like, okay, this is my moment. This is, you know, where after all these years of being rubbish at basketball, they're going to see how brilliant I am. I was right under the basket and I still missed. <laughs> it was like so bad. It was, And the other team were like, you're rubbish. Yeah, they didn't say rubbish. Uh, they're like, you're really bad. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like so. Yeah, so there's that. Some of that stuff is really nice too. So looking back on your career, um, we've now been through all the Paralympics and all your achievements. Mm. You've got so many gold medals. You've got so many world records in so many different events. You've also more recently gone on to win the Lifetime Achievement Award for Sports Personality of the Year. Mm. Looking back on all of that, what's the highlight of your sporting career? How do you even choose one moment from that? Uh, one in the hundreds in Athens, and and not so much, yeah. The winning was lovely, yeah, and but it was the coming back. It was getting everything together. I was a mess on the start line, but uh, yeah, that that was probably one of my most technically perfect races that I've I've ever done. 
and yeah, it'll be it'll be that one. Um, it's it's hard. I mean, it, it's between that and it's the, the four hundred meters that I talked about breaking the world record in. So um, so even though it's quite hard to pick one, but yeah, pro- probably in in terms of perfection and the closest I could be to my perfect race. It's just all those two. Sorry. And I- <laughs> Yeah, and I guess off the track, um, w- one of your achievements that you must be proud of is you have been a big part of the evolution of the Paralympics to um, where it is today since when you first started competing. And I mean, even um, the, the progress for disability rights since you've been a champion of it has, it's definitely come on leaps and bounds, you, you'd have to say. That must be something you're proud of for your impact on that. Uh, the 2012 games were incredible. I mean, I was involved in the bid and then delivery and it was hard and, you know, not every moment of it was kind of exciting. I mean, winning it was unbelievable and it was this like shared emotion and then you've got to make, and, you know, the bombing the next day was just horrific. Uh, and then this, we've got to build it and, you know, we've we've got to make it good for so many reasons um the games themselves were just fab to be part of um and you know the crowds that came to both games and the understanding of the paralympics i do think it's hard because as a games they were stunning but you can't expect the paralympics on its own to change the world it can change the dialogue and the conversation but it also needs government support and it's the same with talking about participation there's always a spike in participation after the games but unless government is going to seriously invest in the infrastructure and coaching and teaching. It's not going to radically long-term change participation. So I I think the London Paralympics will still be for a very long time, the best Paralympics. Um, Mm. And um, I, I do think as part of it, I thought for a while that my job would be to sit through various committees and go, and what about the Paralympics? And I never once had to do that. And I do remember, um, seeing Sebco towards the end of the Paralympics and um you know I've known him a long time and he just said was that all right and went yeah <laughs> and I, I don't think we said much else and he went okay and you know because we sort of know each other a bit you know well enough to be able to do that and yeah so to, it, it was amazing because the t- it was one organizing committee and the team just were phenomenal they were just some of the most amazing people I got to work with you know Sebco Paul Dighton um, we're, we're just fab, fab people to work with. Mm. London 2012 was undoubtedly a highlight in so many sports fans' lives, really, especially kids of mine and Cam's generation. Like growing up watching that, it was an absolutely massive moment. And yeah. I think what you seem to be so happy about the London 2012 Olympics is the opportunity that it gives people and, and the inspiration from that. And it seems like that's quite a big thing in your life, especially the work you're doing now, is allowing people to have opportunity, something that really motivates you and drives you. And is that ultimately what gives you purpose in, in what you're doing yeah it is I mean we talk a lot about equality diversity and inclusion um and and there's lots of different ways you can look at it whether it's in terms of protected characteristics or there's a lot of intersectionality of all that you know your socioeconomic background the education of your parents you know your access to education all these things matter so um I'm very interested in in how we give opportunities to, and, and multiple opportunities to people to be, and so, some people won't take it. You know, I've I've seen some really talented athletes in my career who just didn't want it. And I remember there's one young athlete that um, 
I was asked by the team manager to go and talk to. Really, really talented. He just didn't want to do it. And my job was meant to be to sort him out and keep him in the sports. And and actually what he did, he quit. And I remember the team manager saying, no, but your job was... To... No, 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 gonna... that's what you thought. My job was actually to, to kind of get him to find peace with what he was doing. Because actually him being very talented and not having to work very hard was really detrimental on the rest of the team and the squad. Because he could rock up without doing any training and just beat people really easily. And that was fine for his age. But he couldn't have done that two years from then and he wouldn't have, you know. So actually he would have had a really disappointing career because, and also some of the pressure of everyone going, oh, you're so talented when you're 15. I think it's really hard because then we're setting these young people up for, for lots of disappointment. So actually, I think the best thing I did was, because I said to him, why are you doing it? And well, my, my dad wants me to do it and my coach. And I'm like, do you want to do it? Because actually, two years from now, you're going to have to do a whole pile of stuff you don't like. And he's like, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, don't, don't, don't do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, it's how we give opportunity to young people. And what I get frustrated about is there's loads of young people out there with talent who don't get the opportunity mm. to to find the thing they're good at or the thing they want to do. Or um, it's hard because you know it, it's it, it, it's hard to find all those different opportunities. But I just think we have to be a bit better at it. I mean, so if if I had a magic wand, what I would change is I would have trained PE teachers in primary school and I'd stop talking about sport it's a bit rich coming from me and I stopped talking about elite sport I talk about physical literacy and it's teaching running jumping throwing it's teaching the building blocks and and actually leaving it a little bit longer before we get children playing sports but we we put all the building blocks in place so then when they start playing the sport they've got better skill levels and better fitness levels because actually there is nothing worse than any sport doing it when you don't know what you're doing you're not very skillful and you're not very fit that's that's really miserable so i, I you know but i i think um yeah it, it that's that's quite a big turnaround from from what we we do now because teaching pe to to little ones is really hard it is really really hard so i think we need to do it in a different way yeah and i think that anecdote you said there as well about that young athlete that you had to talk to and the thing that's powerful there I think is you saying about him finding peace with his life basically because although he was an incredibly talented young athlete and a lot of people would then pigeonhole him because of his talent that he needs to go on to become an elite athlete yeah. the thing he might find peace most with is just having sport in his life in some respect and then just doing well in other areas of life do you know what I mean it's Sport doesn't have to be, if you're talented, you have to go on to be that elite sportsman. You can have sport in your life and be at peace with sport and, and go on and do other things. And that's the Olympics need to inspire people to do those kind of things as well. Yeah, and I think that's that's true. And, you know, I think 2012, you know, the opening ceremonies and, you know, the dance, you know, lots of things inspired young people. Whether they stick at it is, is something else. But, um, you know, you, you've got to want to do stuff. And I think there's nothing worse again this young man you know he would have been targeted as talented and then at some point he'd been oh remember he was the talented one that didn't make it and that's that's if someone's if, if that was happening to them when they're 19 I I think it's okay to not want to be an elite athlete it's what I said was um to a select committee is that we need more disabled people just being rubbish at sport it is okay to be bad at sport and then someone said well it's okay for you to say that but and rubbish at really, you know, I, I, tr I try and play tennis and and it's okay because I'm running around. I mean, I spend most of my time picking up the balls rather than hitting them. 
but I'm getting exercise. So it is okay to, to, to just have fun and enjoy it and, and want to be better. Uh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And I, I guess a little bit of my frustration at the moment is that we spend a lot of time telling all disabled children, oh, you can be a Paralympian. Well, the reality is you, you can't, you know, we don't tell every non-disabled child you can be an Olympian. Um, you know, the Paralympics, you know, because of which groups are classifiable and that pathway, it, it's not, as a disabled child, you don't wake up and say, I'm going to be a Paralympian and you become one. You know, it's quite, it's quite hard to. So it's, we, we should be saying to disabled children, you can be a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or loads of other things, but, but not, not only a Paralympian. Yeah, def definitely agree with all that. Cause there's, so, there's so much that you can uh, learn from being in a sporting environment. It's not just about winning. It's about all the uh, qualities you can get from being in that environment. Um, if, if we could go on to um, your, your political career, um, one thing that I'm really fond of that you've done is in 2017, you did the duty of care in sport report. Uh, on welfare issues and sport and this has become especially pertinent in in the last year with British gymnastics which on a personal note is something I'm quite familiar with my dad who's a journalist for ITV's done work uncovering it and some of the stories he's told me is uh, shock, shocking about it and it's basically mirroring everything you predicted in 2017 which is which is awful do you think that these athlete welfare issues are going to continue being an issue in years to come how do yeah. we stop it? Yeah, definitely. Um, because I think what's happened through funding and, you know, Atlanta for the Olympic team was really bad and we want to do better. And I, I think, unfortunately, 2012 is part of it because you want, as a nation, we want our athletes to do well on home soil. And that started developing a set of behaviours which weren't necessarily always positive. And then coming back from that and being the first country to bounce and do more... And then there's been talk recently about, well, we can be top of the medal table. We're a tiny country. I mean, China has 80 million disabled people. Like, so yeah, we can be top of the medal table, but to do that, we need to put three-year-olds in training camps. We can do it. I mean, so there is a price to pay for being involved in elite sports. We have to figure out whether the price is worth paying. And I think, you know, I. I've transitioned out relatively okay, but there's no doubt elite sport has a, an impact on you um, in terms of mental health and well-being and lots of things and that. But um, I think we have a set of young people who are coming through the system who, who don't have to work or don't have to do other things. And so some don't want to think about transition and some just think they're going to earn a fortune working in telly. That's not real. You know, there's only tiny, tiny number of people who do that. So um, I think the, the welfare issues will continue until we bring more balance into it. So, you know, I'm, I'm really keen that, um, you know, education and elite pathway, it, it, it doesn't have to be A-levels or university. It can just be learning, learning language. It can, it can be lots of things that provide balancing in life. So I think, yeah, we're not going to see a change until um, we, we start having a really honest conversation about how many adults is enough. And you talk to the public, and uh, which I, I do, I randomly wander around asking people what they think about stuff. Um, I'm sure they think I'm some batty old woman, but um, <laughs> you know, people remember moments in time. And I'm guilty of it. I watched the Winter Olympics 
every four years. I'm an immediate fan of curling. I become an expert overnight. And then I don't watch it again for four years. Um, but uh, which is like really unfortunate for the poor guys who are, who are playing the sport. But um, people remember moments in time. They, I think the public, yes, we want to win. But actually, if you ask most people how many medals we won in London and, and Rio, people don't know the numbers. They know maybe the position on the medal table or they remember these amazing moments in time. So I think we've got to have a, a balance with that. So I think sport can't mark its own homework. Um, so we do need a numbers moment. We need other stuff. And we absolutely need to have on, honest conversations with young athletes about how when they get dropped out of the system and then what, what they're going to do after. Um, because elite sport is not balanced. And we need to figure out how we put balance back into the system. And that goes for coaches too. I've seen coaches treated really badly. Um, and what is hard is that if you speak out against it and if you try and raise these issues, there's people in the system who don't like it, who who want to hide behind, well, we won medals. And th th that's lovely. It is lovely. But uh, I think we've, we've got to be more than that. And, um, yeah, there's definitely people in the system who, who tried to stop my, my piece of work being published which actually says why it should be published. Exactly. There, there needs to be this, an independent regulator to ensure that there is change um, because there's a fine line between wanting success and wanting the best for your athletes and being too obsessed with winning because that's just going to be detrimental to athletes' welfare. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it, it, Yeah. And we need to have balanced people. So, you know, we, we need to have people who aren't broken at the end of their their career and it's understand I, I knew from a young age physically it, it was going to hurt you know but but it's knowing that from a really young age and being able to put those things you know sort of in play I mean I, I, I think most people should have people like their dad in my life in their lives because I remember I've been on a training camp to Australia for three and a half months and I came home family dinner and I was like oh, no, I went training a lot and it was really sunny and we went out on New Year's Eve and we stayed out till two in the morning and my dad's like right was that it? And it's like, yeah, but, and he's like, right, you trained a lot. Okay. And then I remember he turned to my sister and said, so what did you do today, Sean? And so I, I think my dad brought me up to be a Venn diagram, not, and it's weird. When I retired, I thought that's it. Okay. People will stop calling me the athlete and that'll be great. And then I can do my next bit of my life. And then people still, which is really sweet. People go, oh, you're an athlete, aren't you? I did have someone at a garage recently say to me, oh, how's your training for Tokyo going? <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I didn't know what to, I had a complete panic so I was like oh yeah no Tokyo so I didn't answer the question I was like oh yeah I'm, hopefully Tokyo's going to happen and I'm really looking forward to it and he's like so is your training good so I didn't want to tell him my retired 14 15 years ago but anyway yeah it was like oh my god I felt really bad but I, I was very sweet or I get you're not as skinny as you used to be no but I'm not training 15 times a week anymore so it's okay but yeah it seems like yeah you're just able to put things behind you like I think a lot of people who have your career would sort of try and dine off that for the next 20 years or so but to you it's just yeah that was something that happened 20 years ago and now I'm, I'm on to the next thing yeah I mean I had a very very privileged life in sport and I loved it most not all of it but most of it and I got to do a lot of the, I didn't there's still loads of races if I would have liked to have won um you know um but yeah, I, I think I've only got so much time to do the things that I want to do in my life. So I can't sit around talking, except I've just spent the last hour talking about what I used to do. But if you came to our house, you know, you, I, 
I'm not sure. I think there's one picture of me on the wall in a little room that we don't use. You don't, there's not stuff out. You don't know that I've been an athlete because I, I don't need that. Um, for me, winning the race, but the medals are lovely, really important to my mum, you know. Um, but for me, winning the race was important. So I don't need to constantly remind myself of what I'm doing because I've, I've still got 40,000 things that I want to do with the time that I've got left. Yeah. I guess being an athlete is just such a small part of your of your life, isn't it? And there's you've, you, when you retired, when you were, was it 35 or mid 30s, you, yeah. you've got such a long period left of your life to achieve things. And, and that's what you're doing now. And what's great about your career is it's given you a platform to impact change in society. And that's what your focus is now. Mm. If if we could talk about um that motivation that you have now to impact society so w w one of the big things you do in the house of lords is is work and campaign for disability rights can you talk us through what your ambition is for that field in in the years to come how do you hope that things progress yeah i mean so 2012 was like obviously olympics and paralympics but it was also the biggest piece of legislation i've ever worked on which was the welfare reform bill um and so i tried to change the conversation because in that in terms of benefits, people have to prove what they can't do to get support. And I tried to change it to say, if we're going to give someone this amount of money, can we get them to think about what they can do? Anyway, I completely lost that philosophical argument. I got nowhere with it. Um, it seemed like a good idea. So, yeah, I, I think the benefit system needs an overhaul. I think education is, you know, academies legislation still allows head teachers to exclude disabled children if they want to. We were promised last January the 1st, 2020, trains were meant to be step free. Um, every government has allowed derogations, so it hasn't happened. And we're now being told it's going to be 2070 before I'll be dead. Like, So I joke about because for me, I need humour because I get quite a lot of people like you can't do that, meaning wheelchair user. So I go, what, Welsh people? Oh, well, sorry, did you mean me being a wheelchair user? Oh, which one? So I have to use humour, otherwise I just get really angry and it's not pleasant because I cry and it's very snotty um and so you know with my campaigning for better train access what I say is I I want disabled people to have the same miserable experience of commuting as everyone else people laugh and go because we don't have it we don't even have the same we have a worse experience so there's all these things I want to do but the trouble is there's lots of levers to make that happen so you know again slightly jokey I'd, I'd make it a criminal offense to park in a blue badge space without one bit harsh sending people to jail so it's not so much about that it's about the respect that's shown to people who just abuse it you know and so I don't need a space close to the door because I can push half a mile across the car park I need a space where I can open my door completely to get my wheelchair out to not smash the car next to me so for me you know the people who abuse that it, it just actually shows a lack of respect for lots of things and um yeah I, I'm probably slightly less flippant with people now, but uh, somebody said to me a while ago, oh, I'm just going to get a pint of milk. I'm like, oh my God, that's so, I am so sorry, that's your impairment. Oh, that must be dreadful. And it's like, it, it doesn't matter that you're just going for a pint of milk. It, it's stopping someone who can't park anywhere else. So yeah, it, it's, it, it's hard because it's, sport is easy because it's like, it's a medal. It's you're aiming for something which is really tangible so the biggest thing that I've been involved in this year was domestic abuse legislation. And I was part of a group where we, we've changed the law on it is now, or it will be, a criminal offence to threaten to share an intimate image. So previously it was illegal to share an intimate image. Now it's illegal to threaten to share it. But that went through without like a big vote or a big moment in time. 
because the people working on it had all these conversations behind the scenes with the government and persuaded them it was the right thing to do. It kind of would have been nice if there'd been this big vote that we'd won, that we could go, yeah. but it kind of was something that got accepted and now it's in the... So you don't have those big moments in the same way or, you know, most of the votes I've taken, I've, I've been in charge of, I've lost. But sometimes you can win more by not voting uh, and, and accepting what the government gives you because I know if I vote and I win, it will get overturned in the comments. So the winning bit is so different from, from sport. It's not about being first over the line or winning by loads of votes because it gets overturned. So, yeah, it, anyway, I, there's loads of stuff I want to do and there's loads of different ways to do it. Hmm. I'm almost wondering how you don't get overwhelmed by the scale of the challenge. You know, there's so many people in normal life, like I'm even example of it that will be the smallest thing that will happen in the day and it's almost quite overwhelming i'm just wondering with so many things that you want to achieve and the scale of the the challenge that you're taking on how do you manage to compartmentalize it and just take it day by day and not get completely overwhelmed by it i'm sure it's something that a lot of people can can uh, can take take from that yeah i mean my resilience goes up and down and you know my ability to cope with stuff and sometimes you know I open my inbox and there's 800 new emails in there and it's like you know, or if you're in the chamber really late, you know, you're in the chamber at two o'clock in the morning, you've been in there since two o'clock in the afternoon and you're just so tired, you know, you, you, yeah, there are moments which are really hard. Um, I think some of it is, I'm able to let some of it go. Or, I mean, my dad's no longer with us, but if you ask him, he would just say, I'm just, he used to call me idiot child. And, um, uh, and I think there'd be a bit where he'd just say, you know, you, you just ignore the stuff that you don't want to, to take on board. So I think there's an element of that that is okay, that's not great. What am I going to do next? But I think a lot of it, again, it's I think it's a combination of being in sport and being disabled, where there's all these different sort of little aggressions and microaggressions and little things that have been put in my way. You know, I remember going to a meeting and somebody in the meeting not really wanted me there. So they booked it in an inaccessible venue. So I had to get out of my chair and crawl up the steps. And it's like, oh, okay, that's the game we're playing, is it? Mm -hmm. So I remember ringing a disabled friend and she was really upset. And I was like, oh, I'm not upset. No, no, I, I just know the game we're playing now. So, and they've done it, they've done it deliberately, really hard. So, you know, um, so sometimes being annoyed helps. Sometimes um, I think I'm just really conscious of stuff I do in a sport, you know, it's quite frivolous and it's lovely and it's, you know, it's, it's, it matters to some people. The stuff that I do now affects people good and bad. So people either like me or hate me. And that's some of the hardest stuff to deal with is that people um, people really hate me for some of the stuff that I do. And and that that's genuinely the hardest bit to deal with. Some of the letters that you get can be quite hard. But then you kind of have to go, right, I'm trying to do, I'm genuinely trying to do the right thing for the most people as possible. And sometimes you have to step away from those things, you know, which is, is, is hard to deal with. But I think, again, sport helped me cope with that. Yeah, I mean, sport and your background as an elite athlete must give you so many attributes which are transferable to politics and, and resilience is one of them. And dealing with um, criticism like that is, is part and parcel of being an athlete and also a politician. So there are so many connections between the two. Yeah, and, and there's, what, what always makes me laugh is when people say sport and politics are separate. Oh, they're not. There is so much politics in sport. I mean, in terms of the venues that are chosen for host cities of the games, uh, I mean, just it's never ending. 
that, that how intertwined politics and sport is. So actually, I think for me, transferring from sport into politics was actually all right because mm-hmm. my political upbringing was in sport. Yeah. You know, you, you have a lot of training in politics if you're, and I was an athlete's rep for a long time. So you're exposed to that politics of it all. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think for a long time, because I of where I was in the world, I used to get voted in for the athlete's rep because I go, well, you don't need to be frightened to get deselected. Cause that's, you know, as an athlete, if you raise your head above the parapet, even now, now even up and probably more so, people are really worried they won't get deselected if they have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are all these things. And, you know, we talk about, you know, the, we talked about it recently about the latest where the IOC have said no podium protests. Well, that's been around for a really long time. You look back to the, you know, Mexico games, uh, you know, and Tommy Smith, and actually the three athletes on the podium's careers were very seriously affected by their their protest. Um, and, you know, saying athletes can now protest. Well, some athletes can protest. If you've got the support of your sponsors or your team, or, you know, you've earned enough money for it not to matter, you can protest. There's a whole bunch of people who can't have an opinion and can't protest. You know, the cheerleaders in the States who took a knee... They're just sacked and they barely get a mention. So, so it's not, it's, yeah, the, 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 my politics training goes back to me being 15 years old. And I think, yeah, within that transferring from elite sport to politics, in elite sport, you have to be 100% honest with yourself and with your teammates. And you're constantly asking, why are we doing this? How are we going to get better at this? Why is this the way that it is? And, if you transfer that to politics, that's an extremely effective way of getting something done. You're not going to be afraid, I'm sure, if something is said of just speaking your mind and saying, why is that the way it is or how are we going to get that done? I'm sure that honesty is transferred across and is ultimately really impactful now. Yeah, it, it does, because actually nothing was as scary as competing. So taking something to a vote is not as scary as being on the start line of the 100 metres. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, you kind of sit and count the numbers and try and figure out who's going to go with you and who's not. Um but um, I think what it's taught is there's loads of levers. So lockdown's been hard. I mean, the tech guys in the House of Lords have been amazing. We've gone completely online. We've got an app for voting. We would never have even started that conversation, you know, pre-pandemic. But the hard bit is not being able to see someone for a cup of tea. So we have this really bizarre thing called Long Table, and it's where you have afternoon tea. And I remember when someone told me, it was, I've got time for afternoon tea. Like, I'm working, I'm busy, I'm trying to change the world. And I went, so the rule of, it's a long table. And you have to take the next free seat. So you can't choose who you sit next to. So it's not like a dining hall in sport or at university where you go, oh, I don't want to sit next to you, I'm going to sit over there. So you t- and so you talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to. And through that, it's been amazing. So I remember going in and sitting next to this um, peer who I never would have spoken to. And she was like, now, what are you doing at the moment? It's like I'm trying to do some work on provisional wheelchairs for children. And she's like, what? Now, you need to speak to Lord McColl because he did Thatcher's review of wheelchairs. And you need to speak to Lord such and such because he did um, Blair's review of wheelchairs. You need to... Actually, a lot of these people have ended up in the House of Lords. Not... And, and within five minutes, she'd given me all these different people that I didn't know about and the names, names and numbers for people on the outside... And suddenly I had this like group of people that I could then go and talk to about what I was doing. So, um, yeah, um, what I also learned is not the done thing to sit there and order three plates of sandwiches and two cream cakes in one go. 
that's the exactly me. You have to order them one at a time so people don't see how many cream cakes you're eating. Seriously. Anyway, that's flippant. But um, yeah, there's things like that that actually I miss the cup of tea with people because you can do the levers that you can pull. Mm. That, that's the bit that I really miss about being there. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious of your, your time. I think we are sort of using up a bit of your time. I'm sorry about that. I know I can talk a lot. So thank you. <laughs> it's been amazing. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fantastic insight into your career. It's been so interesting. I, th I think one of my big takeaways, and it's a quote by Nelson Mandela, which I've heard you use before um, in, your, in your acceptance speech for Sports Personality of the Year 2019 for the Lifetime Achievement Award. Sport has the power to change the world. And I think that kind of epitomizes your career in a, in a way. You've inspired so many people in your athletic career. And then you've gone on in politics to inspire and affect change as well. And that's incredible. It, sport does have this power to change and, and you're um, right in the forefront of that. So yeah, thanks for all the amazing work you're doing. And thanks for the last hour. It's been amazing. It's been a real privilege much. to talk to you, Tanya. Thank you so much. That and our... Thank you. That was honestly a privilege to talk for an hour and a half with somebody who has accomplished so much in her life. To hear a first-hand account of all her greatest Paralympic moments, as well as the hard work and dedication that went behind them was fascinating. Above all though, I just really admire Tani's desire to use her platform to help people. We took a lot out of it and we hope you did as well. The interview with Tani was also an amazing way to end what has been a really fun and exciting few months with what we're doing. We've had some amazing feedback and have been able to film more in person, as well as having a few firsts like working with a brand and moving on to different social media platforms. We're more determined than ever to come back in season four with more amazing guests and hope you all want to continue on this journey with us.